You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. For more than six decades, ACT has advanced its mission of helping people achieve education and workplace success. We exist to fight for fairness in education and create a world where everyone can discover and fulfill their potential. Education has power, a power that can change lives forever. It creates opportunities that lift up individuals and their families, and it sparks societal change that echoes through generations to come. From our grassroots, we have fought the good fight for equity in education, and we remain devoted to helping anyone who struggles to access that power. We are all in to create a world that values and encourages each individual's abilities and potential in a society that is fairer and more equitable. What's next for you? A new car? A new house? A vacation? At Alliant Energy, we're planning what's next for your energy by adding more renewable energy sources, embracing new technology, building stronger communities, and providing you with more options. We're not just powering homes and businesses. We're powering what's next for you. Learn more at AlliantEnergy.com slash powering what's next. The phrase people you can bank on, it kind of embodies our legacy. What I think that means is we care about our clients, we care about our community, and we care for each other. Having been in business for over 20 years and uh, explored all possibilities of financing and you know banking relationships, I have found that the people at Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust are people that you can really bank on. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Corridor Media Group's Diversity Straight Up, sponsored by ACT, Align Energy, and Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust. I'm your host, Sadika Bakta, president of Nikea Diversity Consulting. And I'm Anthony Arrington, managing partner of Top Rank, and we are so excited with our guests we're going to have today. Looking yes, forward we are. to it. Yay! We've been looking forward to this. Who we got, Sarika? We have with us Akpara Rice, who joined Tanager Place of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, as the executive director in July 2013 and assumed the role of CEO in July of 2015. Akpara is the first African-American to hold the executive office at Tanager Place in his more than 140-year history. Wow, congrats there, Akpara. He brings leadership experience to Tanager from his work at the Jewish Child Care Association in Pleasantville, New York, the Mercy Home for Boys and Girls in Chicago, the Youth Campus in Park Ridge, Illinois, and Star Columbus in Columbus, Ohio. Akpara is also very active in the field and his community and currently serves on a wide number of boards and advisory committees locally, regionally, nationally, and globally. The issues that fuel his passion and involvement include juvenile justice, access yeah. to services, health equity, education, and leadership development. Most recently, he was appointed to Governor Kim Reynolds Children's Systems State Board, formed to innovately create solutions for youth in Iowa. Akpara also has led more than 60 years of Association of Children's Residential Centers as his first African-American board president. Akpara has presented internationally in Europe and Canada on issues that affect children. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Social Work from Loyola University, Chicago, Illinois, and a Master of Social Work from Washington University, St. Louis, Missouri, where he was named a Distinguished Alumnus of the Brown School in 2018. He also holds an Executive Management Certification from Georgetown University, Washington, D.C., and an Executive Scholar Certificate from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, Evanston, Illinois. 
Agpara lives in Marion, Iowa with his wife, Julie, and sons Malcolm and Dylan. Well, that is definitely. Yeah, I know crazy, it's right? a long, it's crazy, <laughs> but it's quite a, a I know this is a condensed bio, Agpara, but welcome, <laughs> welcome, welcome <laughs> no, to our show. so good to be with both of you. Yeah. Two of my favorite people in the world. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. What do you got, Zedek? I know you got, we have a lot on our mind today. There's something on my mind. I've been struggling with gun violence. Mm. I've been struggling mm. big time with gun violence. Um, and this latest one hit me. Um, and, and I say this as a gun owner. Like, just, just call it what it is. Like, but I struggle with the basics of safety. And, and it hit me this weekend because my cousins live in Allen, Texas. Mm. My cousin was going to go to that mall. His, his mm-hmm. girlfriend was going to go to that mall. And he happened to wake her up because he saw it on the news and he didn't go. And he sent me some disturbing pictures of his uncle's friend who works at that mall. And his uncle's friend was shot up. His oh, uncle's man. friend's, not shot up, so his uncle's, sorry. sorry, his uncle's friend's car was shot up. So he showed me the, the video of the bullets in the car. And he showed me some video of the, the first people that got shot. This stuff is not going to be seen on TV. And, I'm, and I wouldn't even share it with, with Zedeka. It's just disturbing. But what can we do about this? And when we think about, this is Mental Health Month, and when we think about what mm-hmm. is happening there's got that, and, and it's it's politicized, and we know it is. We know it is. Let's just call it what it is. It's politicized. And why do certain political parties not want to make basic things? Why can't I drive a car? Why do I have to be tested to drive a car? But I can walk in and buy a gun in ten minutes. Help me understand that problem. That's what I'm struggling with today. That's what's on my mind, mm-hmm. Well, I am. Uh, hearts and prayers go out to everyone that has been uh, directly impacted and those that have been affected um, not only here in the U.S. but around the world. And um, I am so sorry to hear of all the uh, tragedies that are occurring in the backyard there in Texas, but especially with your family there and uh, loved ones that you know, Anthony. This is something that um, is very challenging. I think we've almost become numb to it, it seems as if every, you know, week you're hearing something on this and i know that um there's debate that goes on in terms of yes it is you know mental health awareness month yet when it comes to gun violence it automatically sometimes you know we do need to you know have conversations around mental health but it has to go even deeper and beyond than just that mental health piece right as you were talking about regulations and policies it's an and there's not an or exactly but i think that if you're pivoting to the or which i think sometimes you see them do saying oh it's a mental health issue solely i don't know i thought i know i don't agree with that there's an and to it anthony yes there's an it's uniquely an american problem it is right the rest of the world doesn't have this and i think that's the part that we don't like to talk about Mm -hmm. is that this is an american problem we like guns i don't i'm not a gun owner but I get people hunt. I get right. people need to, right. you know, protect their homes. I, I'm not so sure we need to be able to buy an AR-15. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure about right. that, right? But we live in a country where this is one of those things that is that is almost like a cultural issue. It's not yeah. even about a policy. Now, it's, it's transcended that into something that is way more divisive than that. Right. But when the rest of the world looks at us and says, what in the world are you doing? You'd have one mass shooting. And people change. Look what happened over in like New Zealand and Australia, mm-hmm. and like they just we don't they don't have this. Right. Canada has more guns than we do, yeah. and you don't see this this happening. Um, but it also is is that stories coming out of Texas, right? I was almost asking you which shooting because right, it's like every yeah, week right. we have mass shootings. <laughs> right. right. Is that you also have someone who potentially this allegedly right now I think they're still investigating with with you know 
neo-Nazi yeah. white supremacy um, type content that they right. have been consuming, right? So again, we go back and look over the last five years, six years, seven years, there seems to be a real rise in this level of hatred right, right around the other. And the yeah. other band. And then when you turn that around, you had somebody potentially drove a car into a, a, a crowd of, yeah. of, mm-hmm. of migrants, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, again, like this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. But those conversations as a country, we're not willing to really have, yeah. right? Yeah. I always tell people when Sandy Hook happened and when all those poor babies got mm-hmm. murdered that way and we didn't act at that point, then we've then then there's no amount of mass murder yeah. that's going to get us to act until we collectively right. both sides say you know what this is not yeah. this is not okay right. because i think sarka you, you mentioned people are numb to it and it's bigger than mental it's bigger than mental health right, um, right. it's also about access access to you know access to weapons um, but mm-hmm. we also know that there are a lot of folks who do have mental health concerns and challenges yeah. um, but yet we've continued to erode the safety net across the country mm-hmm. too so again rhetoric needs to meet resources mm-hmm. and we're not we're not there just yet yeah yeah mm-hmm. as Robin Warnock said prayer is not enough and and yeah. you're, you're you know you're mental you you're deep into yeah. this mental health space and you've spoken internationally so you yeah. understand mental health globally and when i hear an expert like you say that it's it just it makes sense i didn't need you to validate that but my point is it is absolutely true it's not just a mental health it's an and thing so but think about the impact on our children Mm -hmm. think about the impact over just where do you go now and feel safe Mm-hmm. Nowhere. Right? right? Where do you go and feel safe? That's, and so think about that. If you're growing up in this country right now, knowing you go to the mall, you right. go to church, or you go out to dinner, or you go right. to a movie, there's all these places. Has I read a tweet yesterday, and somebody said, the safest place you can be in America is on a plane. Because mm-hmm. it's the one place you're guaranteed to not have a gun. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was such an interesting observation. <laughs> and I was yeah. thinking, boy, oh boy. Yeah. Right? So at the same like at the same time, right, we, we say we want to be safe, but we've made more access, mm-hmm. right, to permitless carry, the yeah. you know, gun show loopholes and all these other things. So yeah. there are more weapons or, or weapons around us, but but we still feel less and less safe. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I wish I had an answer for what to do, but it's it's yeah, it's just collectively we have to we have to reach a point where we yeah. say enough is enough. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I don't know. I don't know when that breaking point will be or mm. be something really, hopefully. I mean, all these yeah. things are tragedies, but um, we're certainly not going to answer it on this show. Yeah. And we came yeah. to talk That's about a hard Opara. topic to start with. It My is. Lord. Okay. It is. Mm. Well, we, 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 we go there. So we, don't, right we don't mind. And, you know, it's uh, to our listeners. We I hope that you are taking action and whatever way that we mm-hmm. all can. So and to our listeners, we hope that you're you are taking a lot of self-care. As you um, navigate and process through a lot of uh, tragedies and incidents that we experience on a day-to-day basis. So I guess that's why this probably very apt that we have Akpara here today as part of uh, recognizing mental health awareness. It's in May, yet it is every day that this is something Mm -hmm. that we are seeing across the you know, around the world, an increase in mental health mm-hmm. and having conversations to destigmatize this because when you're thinking about rhetoric needs to meet resources, I really like that uh, statement that you said, Akpara. So uh, we're going to have some conversations around mm-hmm. that here today as well. So let's get into right. you a little bit more. I guess yeah. we're just going to go from deep to deep here, oh my, my goodness, friend. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're digging deeper. <laughs> Say guess, what's on your mind? In light of the growing um, anti-DEI legislation, including anti-LGBTQ plus legislation across the U.S., 
we know that Tanager Place also has a LGBTQ plus youth center because that is probably one of the focus of Tanager Place is helping with uh, mental health with youth mm-hmm. and families. So with the um, anti-DEI legislation uh, we're seeing across the states, what have been some unexpected or striking observations concerning the increase in mental health of today's youth who happen to be the most diverse generation of our times? Yeah, you know, it's, it's also it piggybacks off of COVID too, right? Well, you know, the, the height of the pandemic, young people are not okay. Being at home 24 hours a day, not okay. My own kids I have two sons, and it was tough. And then you come out of that, we're learning how to be together again, learning what it means to have social interaction, to sit in school. Um, and then this year, legislatively, was a tough year um, for young people in the LGBTQ plus community. Very, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how else to say it when you have people who, who are questioning your very existence. And, and there is no nuanced conversation that happens, which is very unfortunate to me. Like there is no, there is no conversation to sit down and say, or how, do you, how do we try to meet everyone's needs, right? Like what are we afraid of? Um, when you look at the, the DEI sort of backlash, right, the bigger backlash, um, I want to say that I'm, that I'm surprised, but I'm not. Um, again, when, when something happens in society and people kind of rush to that, I was telling my students, I teach um, adjunct down at the University of Iowa, that if, if it's not met with true policy, then, then there is no lasting effect. There is no lasting effect. Mm-hmm. And so while you're doing one thing here, there's something else completely happening somewhere else. And so that was, that's the game. That's always been the game. Supermajorities, elections have consequences. Um, sometimes you, you have a solution in search of a problem. You know, if you look at what happened in the Lindmar district, you know, when they put the policy on paper, the policy had been that way for five years. Mm-hmm. Five years. Mm-hmm. No problems. Not an issue. You put it on paper. You have 270 people, um, you know, come out to, to protest the policy. What was lost in that discussion was there is a group of students in that that crowd of adults telling them that they shouldn't exist, that they're an abomination, that they're that they're rapist and waiting. Right? Mm-hmm. They they had to sit through that, yeah. and then get up and still have the courage and then and then to speak publicly and then come back to the center and say, why do they hate us so much? Think about that as a child. These are still children. Mm-hmm. Why do they hate us so much? Um, how do you get into a situation with your child and their doctor and you're making a plan for them and then to have someone say, you know what, actually the plan you worked on with your child, you can't do. you got to go to a different state to get gender-affirming care. When we say that we care about parental rights, when we just strip them of that, right? I don't want to get too political, but, you know, again, These are let's, facts. The, the, this, is, this is the reality. And yeah. so those mm-hmm. families, they had a parent in my office crying because they're like, I'm leaving the state. This is not a safe place for me to be with my child. Um, and that's the reality. And so, you know, again, good people who you can have conversations with and have discussions with and one-on-one, you can, people, they had actually didn't make sense. But, we, I mean, you can't have one-on-one conversations with everybody across the entire state, right? That we need people to also be champion, champions for this. And, and um, I have to give credit to our Senate Director, Lori Ampey, who, first of all, is an incredible soul. She has set with young people at their mm-hmm. most vulnerable, set with families at their most vulnerable, and continue to give those young people hope that it's going to get better, that that pendulum will swing back. Because, again, this state has a long history of being supportive of that community. Mm-hmm. We just happen to be in a dark place right now. Maybe people can tell me or have hope yeah. because we can come out on the other side of it. It may be years down the road, but, but maybe the pendulum will swing the other yeah. way. You know, as you, as you think about the mental health challenges, and they're, they're across the board, the one thing that, 
I was really surprised at, and it's something I hadn't paid attention to as an African-American male until the pandemic hit. And I, I, I learned that, you know, uh, black folks, we have a challenge seeking health care anyway. It's mm-hmm. been a historical yeah. challenge for a number of reasons. Access, you know, uh, lack of cultural sensitivity of health care professionals, money, uh, uh, prejudice from healthcare professionals. Yeah. Historically, uh, we don't go to therapy. Right, we don't, we don't go to we therapy. So yeah. when you think about mental health, it's even worse. And I didn't realize that until the pandemic. And, and 25% of Americans, African-Americans, seek mental health compared to 40% of, of white mm-hmm. Americans. Is that something that you've always known as a, as a, as a mental health act, uh, yeah, expert? Yeah, you know, I grew up in Chicago, right? Yeah. I grew up in South South Chicago. I, don't, I can't tell you anybody in my family my network, whoever said they were going to see a therapist. It just didn't happen. It just didn't. It's not one of those things that was culturally looked right. at that way. Nor therapists in school, nope, didn't exist. But if you're like me, you knew a bunch of them that were messed up. Yeah, you know, we had, we had some, everybody, everybody's, <laughs> fam, everybody's family's got some challenges. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but what's remarkable is, and this was maybe about seven years ago, I, my, my timeline's off. I was reading a study by Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus. And the study was how uh, rates of um, suicide for 12 and under African-American kids were outpacing their white, pe- their white counterparts in suicide. And again, I'm a mental health professional. I did not realize how many kids of color were thinking about suicide 12 mm-hmm. and under. Um, I was astounded by that. And that's when we started, our, we started a symposium at Tanager. That's when we had the first. It was more suicide-focused, that first symposium. It's now wellness and, and, and resilience. We just mm-hmm. had it last week. And I was blown away by it. Like, wait a minute. Like, this is a na- this is a cri- this is a crisis crisis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not talking about it in those terms. And it is very hard um, for people to engage in in therapy, right? People of color and in a community and where where you live at. I think there's been a lot more destigmatization around therapy. You hear because mm-hmm. it's in the media. You're hearing um, athletes and other folks yeah. talking about it. And I think that helps take some of that. Like, Oh, it's, it's okay. Yeah. I've been glad right? to see that. Yeah. Um, the whole make it okay campaign, you know, that, mm-hmm. the, that the state has had, those things really do matter. Yes. Um, NAMI does some tre- tremendous work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think people are like, okay, wait a minute. Yeah. We, we've got to look at this differently. And we know that there are these real challenges. Yeah. And I think the community is becoming much more open to it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially communities of color because the, again, yeah. the stats are there. Yeah. Um, but we got to have professionals who are willing to to go into those communities. We got to have people who look like look like them, look mm-hmm. like us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who are doing some of that work. Yeah. Um, and you got to meet people where they're at and yeah. understand that there's a lot of trauma that people experience, a yeah. lot of fear, right? Yeah. You know, so every time we we jump into a car, I get stopped by a cop. I don't get stopped that much anymore. But you know, you, you automatically your anxiety goes up, right? Like the, that's it's all done. trauma. Yeah. That's all in our DNA and lessons we pass on to our own children and. And, and, you know, when you think about those messages, you know, what is that saying? It's, it's inherently saying you're not safe, right? right? And so, again, what does that do to a young, a young person in mm-hmm. their, um, you know, in their development? Yeah. So, yeah. And those yeah. microaggressions that you just mentioned oh, yeah. about being pulled over because of the color of your skin, mm-hmm. Akbara. Over time, those microaggressions, you know, what they say, bitten by mosquitoes a thousand times yeah. over and over and over and over. Yeah, and, but it has and, an imp- and I'm light-skinned, right? So mm-hmm. I get it in a different way that some of my dark-skinned brothers get it, <laughs> right. right? So and that's part of it. That's part of the realism that people don't like to talk about, yeah. right? But that's a that's a part of yeah. it. But go ahead. Yeah. I know. Even Saturday, we've had that conversation even about you growing up as a child coming to America and going to the store. 
and the challenges that you've had. And that's traumatizing to yeah. you have to think about that. It is. And I think the other thing is when you're thinking about um, many of the communities and the underrepresented, you know, segments, like if I look at the Indian population, it is such a stigma to talk about mental health. And we're a very collectivist community. Mm. Whereas growing up here in America, born in India, but grew up here in the Western, you know, culture is very individualistic. So it's more about taking care of yourself. You can independently do it, feel empowered. Whereas, you know, being in, um, and I'm going to say my lens, my community, my culture, what I experienced is that there is not that very individuality. And it's really the everyone should take care of each other. So the family is there to take care of you. Why do you need to go outside to get professional support? Why air your dirty laundry? Right. And that whole concept of mental health is that some folks think, oh, well, what is mental health? Is it for every day of your life? It could be. Or is it a short term in your, you know, journey of your life because you experienced something tragic? Yes, it could be that as well. Mm -hmm. So I know that we're having conversations in our home because of COVID had an impact in our own family, as many did too, especially with having young children and the whole loneliness aspect of it. So I guess my question is, you know, we encourage people, young people to seek help when they need it. We've been saying that we in the school district, right? When you need help, speak out. Yet, because of the divisiveness, it's not just now, it's been very divisive as a country and as a world. And with the uh, increase in social media, you're seeing that increase in loneliness, depression that children are experiencing, as well as the increase in suicide rates. So we are giving our mm. youth mixed messages. Come and seek us out. But yeah, what they're seeing is that if they do, they're going to either get stigmatized, they're not going to feel as if they're being heard, valued, seen. So why should they speak out? What can we do as, you know, as a collective society? These are our youth. There are young leaders now. Yeah. And when you're thinking about, you know, our generation, we have an aging population. We're seeing a decrease in population around the world. Right. What are we doing? What are the couple yeah. of steps can we take that is going to move the needle? Yeah. That's a know, heavy load uh, well, question a, here. Uh, you heavy, know? heavy question. I, you know, one, I think we have to keep telling people it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. Right. It's not cliche. It, it really is OK. And to be checking in on each other. Um, I cannot tell you how valuable that is um, for young people and yeah. for adults. You know, again, we it's not just about a mental health crisis. Right. <coughs> Throughout life, we are going to have those peaks and those valleys. Mm -hmm. And when you think about who helped who helped you get out of a valley or who right. who has helped you. Um, kind of get over those those hurdles and build that resilience, right? It's, always, it's usually someone there. Yeah. It's usually someone just a kind word. They're not trying to figure it out for you. Like, and to be that person, um, I am not a big social media fan. I have to be honest with you, mm -hmm. and maybe I'm getting too old or something. I actually think, but the studies have shown that it actually works against us and mm -hmm. actually has made it worse for young people mm -hmm. because you look on those things and everybody's posting their, their favorite pics, right? Nobody's sitting there posting pics when they're depressed or when life isn't good. Everybody's living their best life. So, God, if I'm not feeling so great and all my friends are, my God, they're, they're living it up. What's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. um, that's, a, that's really hard. That's hard on adults too, it's uh, right? And so we all have those, those things. I think that when you go back, and I'm going to go back to the COVID-19 pan pandemic, mm -hmm. I think that we learned that not everybody is okay. And I actually think the glass half full part of the pandemic is that people all, all socioeconomic levels realize, you know what, I've got to treat mental health as well as I do my physical health. 
And I think that that's the messaging that came out of this pandemic that we can build on. And it's those deliberate messages to young people that just speak up. If you're not, how are you feeling? Like I ask my son, how are you guys doing? Like how's, what's going on with your friends? And they tell you, oh, this person, my sons have had friends who have been, who have contemplated self-harm. They've had friends who have been in intensive therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, They've known people to go into hospitalization. And for them, it's not like, oh, that's, that's foreign. I mean, again, they know what I do for a living. Yeah. But is that how do you support someone through things? And they, they and it's amazing how much they actually do that, just without even thinking oh, about yes, it. Oh yes, so they inter- do, yeah. and it's they so really refreshing. Yeah. I think this yeah. is where adults can learn from the young ones. Absolutely. At the end of the day, they yeah. do embrace diversity like no other. Yet yeah. I think that inclusion and engagement is where they're going to have to be, you know, because of the social media, yeah. et cetera, yeah. that engagement can be impacted. Yet when it comes to diversity yeah. and being there for each other, I think this yeah. is where. And you never know what someone else is going through. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, I, and I think kids and young people understand that differently. Right. But in the moment, it's hard and everybody yeah. may need a hand, a professional hand to help them get out of that valley. But that connectedness and being there for a person and showing love and showing care. That's something we can all do that will help everyone's, right. you know, mental well-being. Yeah. But there are times when we need professional help and there are people there. But this is the key is that when they need that help, they got to be able to access it. Yeah. They got to be able to access it easily yeah. and they've got to be able to, to not have roadblocks to that help. Because yeah. if when somebody is in that place and they're ready. We need to make sure they can get what they yeah. what they need. Yeah. I think I the other thing is, that. oh, I do have a quick follow up. That cultural competency from professionals mm-hmm. who are giving care, I think that makes a big Huge. difference as well. Yet, because I know that I have some friends and you know family members that were seeking assistance, and not many understood, you know, at least from the um, you know South Asian lens, mm-hmm. and the challenges and the nuances. And even so, I think that makes a big difference. I'm seeing more and more of um, professionals that are out there identifying which communities that um, they can really connect with just because that exposure and um, at least understanding how people were raised Mm -hmm. makes a big difference. If they're not, you know, raised here in America, then that's another whole huge layer that needs to be, you know, unpacked as well. I know an obstetrician that was here in Cedar Rapids who's no longer here, and she left our community. And it was a black woman and she left our community because she was trying to uh, impress upon her colleagues. She had challenges trying to help them understand the cultural competency needs that that matter in their jobs as doctors. Mm -hmm. And she was being literally ostracized for this, trying to be a better human in terms Mm -hmm. of not just her medical treatment, but how to treat people when they walk in the office. How do you say hi to people? How do you proximity, things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and it and it became a challenge. And you're so right. Um, you know, being culturally competent as a physician, you know, I, as a as a double amputee myself, I think my greatest relationship with my amputee isn't the fact that he's really skilled at his work. It's that he knows me as a person. Like right. he knows my body, he knows my habits, he knows me, and he can treat me differently than he may mm-hmm. treat somebody else with the same problem because he's culturally competent yeah. and, and that matters. And so, But what, what has happened, it, it's a piggyback on that, is that cultural competence and wokeness, like the, the waters have gotten so murky, mm-hmm. right? right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. so now it's like, what is this equity thing? What is this, we've gone too far, right? Well, yeah. And when it's just saying, no, understand that people come from different walks of life and it, 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 it behooves you to kind of understand that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying you have to be a black person to be a good therapist for a black child. No. 
But if you, anybody, you want to know that person, you want to know their circumstance, you want to know where they came from. Sure. If I go and I, and it happens all the time and you guys probably experience this. If I go see, meet somebody who's from the South South of Chicago, there's a shorthand that you can talk, mm-hmm. right? There's a different level of relate. You, you, you've cut through some layers. So yes. yeah, it's a little bit faster process, but I've also in my career had therapy and worked with people who are from completely different walks of life to me. And you learn to learn about them. Yeah. I didn't know anything about rural issues. I grew up in the city. I ain't know anything about rural issues. Mm-hmm. Moving here and you listen to people and you understand that that's what all what cultural competence yeah. is. Yes. But we've 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 corrupted it in a way that makes people feel like to learn about someone else is you're giving into this wokeness. Right. And that's a dangerous place to be. It, it is yeah. a very dangerous place to be. Yeah. At the end of the day, when we're living in a global society, because technology mm-hmm. has made us even more connected. And we've seen with COVID the impact of that, you know, being part of that global society, um, we're not in a bubble anymore. Yep. And uh, when you engage in getting, when you engage with people with different lived experiences and backgrounds, that's what cultural competency is right. at the end of the day. It could be someone who has a different political view. How is your level of cultural competency there? Someone who has a different religion. What is your cultural competency of interacting with people with different religion? Go down through all of the different, you know, um, areas. What about someone with a different level of socioeconomic status? Right. That's right. social. Cult- I mean, that's cultural competency as well. It's just Hunt. differences, right? So, it, go ahead. No, it's, it's interesting too because I want to circle back to something you said earlier about social media and how it has it has uh, caused more harm. It has caused harm, and and also the comment you made about. The fact in the last five or six years, more more people are more comfortable talking about mental health. The one thing I think has happened, and this is where the wokeism by folks who are concerned about it is coming in, is because I believe more people, and social media has contributed to that in a good way. More kids, more people are talking about it. They're saying it. And so mm-hmm. there's this real diversity and equity mm-hmm. and inclusion fatigue. I'm tired of hearing about it. I'm tired of talking about it. I'm tired of talking about mental health. Uh, and I'm tired of these LGBTQ kids coming out of the closet. I'm tired. What are they indoctrinating our kids? They're not indoctrinating. What is happening is people are more confident talking about it now. One of the things we talk about as facilitators with organizations is that sometimes before things get better, you may see more complaints in your company because you've made people, you put people in a place where they're comfortable Mm -hmm. talking about it. So I'm, it's, it's, we're talking about it more and the people that are fearful of it are causing challenges. And so they take wokeism and they, they contextualize it somewhere else when that's not really what it's about. Yeah. yeah. It's that fear. It's what that's you it. said. It's that fear of, right. of not understanding. Right. It's the fear of my world is changing and it looks very different, right, than right. what I knew, you know. And, again, like I'm not, I mean, I'm 49. I don't feel like I'm, you know, you know that old yet. Yeah, old yet. <laughs> but if you go back 10, 12 years, even, 15 years, even our commercials were very different, yeah. right? And that's okay. Like it's evolved. It's just sometimes, and I think this year, the the legislation that was passed the translate it was like trans um was just one issue too far for people like it was just like okay wait a minute that's just one issue too far right and and what it is it really is about just not understanding and as i'm saying go back to that dialogue of not listening not right. not the because the the examples people give are so far on the extreme right? yes. yes um and and so people don't listen but mm-hmm. when you have the American Pediatric Association, the American Medical Association, parents, all kind of all the leading professional organizations say, don't do this. It's not good for young people, and we do it anyway. Yeah. Then, then again, you, you've got to be willing to listen and to grow. Yeah. And, and for me, I feel like we have to create opportunities for people. It doesn't excuse anybody's behavior. 
But again, how do we get back to some type of solution? If people don't start listening to each other and like really hearing each other and dealing with that, um, you know, again, it, it won't. Well, I, I go with an example. I moved here. Again, I never hunted. My, my son's best friend, his family, they hunt. We were driving the car. True story. I drive the car. Wonderful kid. Shout out to Eason. Um, he's a great kid. And mm-hmm. Malcolm. Been buddies since they were fifth, fifth grade. Got here. And he's talking about turkey hunting. And he's telling Malcolm, you know, I'm driving, yeah. I'm listening to this yeah. conversation about he killed this turkey, him and his grandpa. He was so proud of this, like, hunting culture. And I'm sitting there like, oh, my God, this dude's out here shooting mm-hmm. stuff. And he says to Malcolm, you should totally come hunting with me. We would, you would have a blast. We would teach you how to do it. And I was like, no, nah, we don't do that. We don't. We. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, nah, black people, we don't do that, yeah. right? Um, and so he just laughed. Like, this kid has been with us a long time. Like, he's right. a friend. And it was like the understanding. He helped teach me about what hunting culture is sort of like. And this, this kinship, I did not realize the bonding that happens with people while they hunt, right? Right. All I see is a 13-year-old with a rifle, and I'm like, I have nightmares in my head. Yeah. And for him, it's the way he bonds with his grandfather, right? Again, this is a kid right. talking to me about hunting, and I talk to his father about, what is that What is that like? like right. So, again, people have to be open now. I still don't let my son to go hunting with them now. I'm not, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not something we do, but – but it's that that ability to at least listen to then understand that so to get it. And so you just that's just a microcosm of other stuff. We just don't listen to each other. Listen um, to understand. That's, yeah. I mean, that's that uh, it's just so many problems have gone just that we just cease to listen. We just cut it off. Right. And we live in our vacuums. Yeah. And that's not a healthy place to be. It's not. And I think that is probably one of the key solutions is before you even look at, you know, what can we do next? Listening. You can agree to disagree. I'm a OK with that. No one is going to agree with me on 100%. I wouldn't have any friends. I wouldn't have any family members at that point, right? So uh, how do you seek to understand and listen? And you can say, okay, thank you so much for sharing your perspective. I'll, you know, we can still continue to, you know, disagree. Yet you're starting to build that trusting relationship Mm -hmm. with those individuals, with whoever you're trying to build that, you know, strong relationship, right? So the next time if some issue arises, you can take a pause, come back and engage in dialogue around it. Absolutely. Versus going into the cancel uh, culture or any other, yeah. you know. I want to switch gears a little bit. Yeah, man. Um, I want to talk about you, the man. Um, you know, I, I think uh, when we bring leaders on, one of the things we, we, we tend to, to talk about is we know our lived experiences shape us as humans. And I read your bio, but I also know that I've heard you speak before. Um, and you're an, an amazing speaker. And I remember one time you were telling a story about growing up in Chicago on the south side and how it was challenging and poverty. But you talked about being homeless at one point. Hmm. And I know that your focus is on equity, access, and justice. So when I connect those dots, how, when you look in the mirror at yourself, how do you think about the fact that you're homeless? And how did equity and lack of access contribute oh, to that? Yeah. And how does that shape you today? Yeah, the- you know, that's such a good question. It's so weird. Like, you know, you talk about yourself in these different arenas, and you're just yeah. like, I, I get bored talking about myself. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's, an, it's a crazy journey for me. And for those who have couch surfed, you know exactly what I'm talking about, mm. um, you know, with a family who was trying to survive. Yeah. I, unfortunately, my father was uh, one of those people caught up in, in the drug epidemic mm-hmm. and um, we lost everything. And, and he eventually got clean. I always have to tell that part of the story. Yeah. He eventually got clean. My parents are not together. Um, but we went through a lot. And what I saw was just I look at my work knowing how hard it can be for people. And when people are on those margins and you're borrowing a 20, you know, to do what you got to do or mm -hmm. um, people giving you food or a mom who's doing everything she possibly can to keep you on the straight and narrow. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, I, I understand that. I understand the struggle um, in right. a different way. Um, and so I always tell people, don't pass judgment on people. You, don't, you haven't walked in those shoes. You don't know what it's like. Yeah. You don't know what people are going through. You don't know how hard families um, fight to survive. Yeah. Um, you don't know how hard it is just to keep food on a table and somebody's roof over your child's head. Um, and so I credit my mom um, with keeping us, keeping us going. Right. My parents are not perfect people. Um, yeah. They wouldn't pretend to be perfect people. Um, I tell a story and this is an important story. And I, and, uh, I want to give a shout out to my mom, Joyce Rice, um, who shout out who, Joyce. Shout yeah, out. Seriously. Um, so when I was 16 in Chicago, you couldn't drop out of school. Your parent had to come and take you out of school. I never, mm-hmm. never forget this. So I dropped out of high, I'm a high school dropout. Mm-hmm. And my mom was coming to disenroll me. We had, I had worked out this deal with her. I found an alternative way to get to college and, uh, and I convinced my mom to, to do it. And uh, she said, all right, if it doesn't work, you're going to work and you're going to night school. You're not going to sit on my couch. That's, that's Joyce Rice for you, right? Go, mom. But yeah. So she, she went um, to school. I'll never forget it. I'm sitting there, 16-year-old me, with the counselor and my mom. And the counselor says, it looks at my mom in the face and says, you know your son is not going to amount to anything. And it's going to be your fault. They pull him out of school. He's never going to be successful. And it's going to be your fault. And you're allowing that to happen. Like I'm sitting there like I'm this nobody. My mom looks Mm -hmm. dead in the face and says, to this day, she says, I'm going to I'm going to bet on my son. I think he's going to be all right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, mama. And and, uh, so that's that's who I come from. Yeah. That we weren't going to fail. And I was not going to waste the opportunity and belief she had in me. Mm -hmm. Um, My father, to his credit, even through his drug abuse, loved me to death. Yeah. Still does. I'm still like, I think in their mind, I'm like 18 or something because they call me and drive me crazy all the time. <laughs> um, but it's it's about that journey of knowing that you you can overcome whatever you can, whatever is yeah. thrown in front of you. And that's what my life gave me. Yeah. And I'm surrounded by people in my, li- in my life who are incredible. My wife is incredible. My, mm-hmm. my, my friends are incredible. My, my family's incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, and and you make and you make it. So yeah. I went back to school <clears throat> for prom the next year, and they're like, "Man, where where you been?" And I was like, "I've been I was in college for the last year." <laughs> so uh-huh. I went to college when I was seventeen. So um, people are like, "Man, that this dude, like, what in the world?" Yeah. Um, but it was another. I got to tell this one one other story because it's really important. Please, to me. Do, please um, do. When you talk about kindness and connectedness, so I had a teacher. Um, Linda Lorenz, who has since passed away, which is I'm very sad. Never got to find her again. Mm-hmm. Um, so my my summer, I was like, I didn't go to school like at all, right? I didn't go. To, I mean, like seriously, I didn't go to school. So of course, in the year, my report cards were I had six Fs and a D. I'd never forget it. Six <laughs> Fs and a D. And Linda Lorenz gave me the D because she couldn't give me the F. She said I was already going through so much in life. She was not going to give me that. Oh, Miss Lorraine. And, and so literally, I would go to school. I would be with her and sit with her and her love of literature and reading. And just she just she just allowed me to be. Right. Um, man, I got it, it, that at that point because I'm in so much school. I had get t- I had two two week in school suspensions and then an out of school suspension. That's how much school I missed. They were like, you know what? We're trying to get you to drop out. Yeah, that's what they did. Drop out. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. a weird Chicago's. Yeah. A, it was a weird public school system. Maybe it's softer now. I still yeah. hope so. Um, but she was a, a again. You, when you have people in your life, and it's about again mental health. Mm-hmm. Like she doesn't even realize yes. Yeah. Yes. that she was helping me have reset myself and make me feel like I'm still okay as a person. Yeah. So I remember when I dropped out, I came up, gave a big hug, and she's like, "Just make it." I was like, "I got you. Don't worry." I got you. And then yeah. life takes you away, and um, and wouldn't you know it? I never got to say um, yeah. 
um, say thank you. We always cherish those moments, though, and that's yeah. good. That's good. Yeah. yeah. But I met her brother. This is a crazy that, part of the story. I'm so sorry. That's all right. So this is so bizarre. So years pass. I'm like, man, I really need to find her. I really want to find her. And years pass, never did. We moved to Iowa. My my sons are in Boy Scouts. My sons are in Boy Scouts. And it just so happens. It came up one day. My wife was like, the teacher's name's Lorenz. I was like, yeah, that was. She's like, I think her brother is the Boy Scout, one of the Boy Scout folks. Oh my goodness! Oh my. And sure enough, that was her brother. She had just died like two years before that. Yeah. And I got a chance to say to him how much his sister meant to me and was impactful for me. That and, was uh, amazing. So I got to come for soccer, but that's the universe, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. So anyway, never a million years, I would say that would have happened. But yeah. again, you show compassion to people. The Karma. laws of proximity, the laws oh, of man. proximity and being around supportive people. We talk about that a lot, Sadika. Yeah. Kindness. And understanding yeah. and Giving. kindness. Being compassionate yeah. at the end of the day, that's the the humanity and having that empathy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You know, just listening to your story and thinking about um, all that you have overcome, the adversity, people having faith in you, which allowed you to have faith mm-hmm. in yourself as well. And I think that that, that, that is it's beautiful. That's magical. We need more of that. Uh, made me think a little bit about, you know, um, you know, just thinking about my daughter wrapping up eighth grade here. She has missed so many days of school this year. Not kidding you. Health, mental health, mm-hmm. physical aspect, you know, trying to figure out what happened, all of that. And, you know, um, you've got a lot. We've been in touch with, you know, you know, the counselor yeah. and we've been in touch with the, 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 you know, the educators and the teachers. And she's really good about following up with them when she's not there. She's still performing A pluses, A pluses, right. A's. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it just goes to show that I, you know, people can say, or oh, because of attendance, you're not going to perform. Or if you don't go to school, you're not going to perform. If you have people that are supportive and can be there when you need that mental health support, you can really overcome mm-hmm. that. So, this whole aspect of what should life look like, you know, and that if you it's don't do different. it, that you're not going to make it. Yeah. We really just have to look at different narratives that are going to be individualized for in, for people. And when you were just sharing me your journey and your story, it, it, it gives hope. Yeah. It gives oh, yeah. hope, Akpara. Well, I believe, I really do believe in that. And there's a lot of mentors and other folks along the along the journey who who invested in me, mm-hmm. um, which is why these things are so important to yeah. me. And I do believe education is kind of the, go- the great equalizer. But you got to have the right. You got to have the right supports, and um, just because you have means and you can get tutors and other other things doesn't mean that everybody shouldn't have those opportunities. Right. And I think that's the part we have to continue right. to strive at. Um, and so I was lucky. Yeah. yeah, I really do believe I was lucky. Yeah. I had a mom who wasn't going to let me quit. I right. had a grandmother who wasn't going to let me quit. Yeah. Um, and I had enough going for me that. I knew I could achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, but absolutely, a lot of my family, I have a lot of family members who went to prison. I have a lot of family members who went down a different path who are the same age as me. So you, you, it's, you're right on that line, right? right? Um, but, you know, what I think in our work is that we're trying to pull people from that line. Yeah. So, you know, there's a there's mm-hmm. a different way. And that line uh, is real. Yeah. yeah. I, I, when I hear people say, oh, I can't afford to go to college, I can never. Look, man, I, I went to college with zero. Right. right? My, there was no parental kick right. in for that. You can do it. Um, right. You can do it, but it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Right. Um, and we have to learn. I think that's what's really hard is yeah. that is that sacrifice um, right. is really difficult for yeah. people. And it doesn't mean you're not going to fall. It's that precisely, it's that long range view you yeah. have to have um, to order achieve your goals. And that's what we got to give young people today yeah. too. Is that hope? It's going to be. It's tough right now. Mm-hmm. It's going to so, pay off later on too. Yeah. So what what keeps you up at night? As a oh man, as a as a. <laughs> That, I, I love asking that question. Man. You know, it's, it's you know, you think about the divided society we're in, and the and the 
in the world that you're in and from a mental health yeah. standpoint and what you do, what, what, what keeps you up at night right now? If you, if you had to put a finger on it, man, I, I'm going to, I got to put my lens on as a dad. Mm. You know, I, I worry about my kids. Yeah. I worry about the world in which they're growing up in. I worry that, um, I'm not going to lie. You know, I worry like when they're at the yeah. house, you know, my oldest son started driving. I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I could deal with this. I don't know <sighs> yeah. if I could. Mm-hmm. I know everybody's been through that struggle. If you haven't yeah. been there, like, man, oh man, I don't, I don't know. I'm just scared every time he leaves right. the house, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I have my fear, right? Like yeah. where, where college campuses aren't safe, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, you know, what is the world at which they're inheriting, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what keeps me up at night. I, I, I just, I want them to be happy. Mm-hmm. I want them to grow up happy. I want them to have opportunities. I want them to grow up in a world where there's not fear and there's not war. And and those are things out of my control, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's what keeps me up at night. Just I just worry about people, man. Yeah. I, I just I hate to say it. I just one of those those folks. I just like I worry. You, you yeah. look on the news you and, and you see those families yeah. and and you know reading about what happened in Texas and and the pictures. And I didn't look at the pictures. I couldn't do yeah. it. Um, you know, the, it, and even you go back to COVID, right? People are like this. We look at the, you remember you, you turn on the news and they have the number of deaths. And oh, it was yes. like a, yeah. a, a, a clock. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like yeah. it just kept ticking. I just kept thinking, these are lives. lives. Yeah. Yes. You know, yeah. that's the stuff that that um, humanity keeps me up. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, I got to be honest, that's that's the stuff. And, yeah. and you know, it's not everybody's going to sing Kumbaya together, but mm-hmm. we, we, we got to do something different yeah. as a society and how we care for each other, how we talk about the poor how we care yeah. for our elderly like yeah. we've got to look at th- we just got to look at we got to do the hard work yeah, yeah. and having money and means is not that shouldn't that shouldn't preclude other people from having a good life mm-hmm. um i was just in, in los angeles for a conference and and i was shocked at the level of homelessness mm-hmm. just the and, and i hadn't been there in like maybe nine years mm-hmm. and how how much worse it's gotten. Yeah. Right. Then you look out here, even in our little community, you know, I'm at Whipple for an event and I look outside and the green square is filled with homeless people. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like how do we care for those who are the most vulnerable in our community? It says a lot about who we are as people. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps me up. It's like, right. how do we go back and create a safety net that, that actually does care for yeah. people and not demonize people for not having, yeah. um, that's the stuff that yeah. that uh, that bothers me. But you, I mean, you know, yeah. people here who, who you know run circles with me hear me on my soapbox. No, no, we love it. That's <laughs> what we, we we need more soapboxes and we yeah. need more people to use their voices and and ask the right, ask the questions. Yeah. You know, ask the deeper question, ask the whys, ask the why. You know, we we tend to stop at the what and we no. just move on. But we no, gotta ask no, the deeper right. questions. You're a big empath. You're a big empath. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I look at that, and this is where I think we need more empathy. And have, uh, you know, individuals that are in, you know, mm-hmm. uh, flex their empathy muscle more. And oh, I yeah. think that's the missing um, component of it. Yeah. And as empath, though, that's a lot of, you know, self-centric care needs to be given mm-hmm. uh, so that we can be there for ourselves, too, because it impacts us in a different way. Absolutely. My daughter's a big empath. And I can, you know, we were just, you know, at Walmart yesterday and um, there was a mother and a daughter had a sign walking through the parking lot. And immediately my daughter's like, oh, my heart breaks, you know. And mm-hmm. so it's just she's like, what can we do? Yeah. Yeah. Can I tell you a, a, another quick story? Yes, yeah, please, please, story. please. So my dad got clean. Um, I, I wound up going to Loyola University in Chicago. And and it was a north side of Chicago. People know where Loyola's at. And there's mm-hmm. a, a, a soup kitchen not that far from there. Good news soup kitchen. It's still there, I believe. 
There's the only soup kitchen in Chicago. Remarkably, it was open every single day of the year. Mm -hmm. Anyway, my dad got clean. He used to actually go there to eat. That's mm -hmm. actually how he got clean. Remarkable. Um, yeah. And he wound up running that soup kitchen. By the time I got to college, oh, he was wow. running that soup kitchen. So I'm not nice. that far from him. We were trying to reestablish some level of relationship. Yeah. I would go down there and just sit in the in the the uh, you know where they would serve the food. Yeah. And my dad was like, "Oh yeah, you should go talk to this person. This person's been through this. This person's been through that." Like my dad can talk to anybody. My dad's yeah. like the complete opposite of me. Yeah. I'm like such an introvert. My dad is like a <laughs> super extrovert. Would talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime. And I remember being in this room with folks and hearing their stories, and hearing um, just kind of about their life's journey. Yeah. And how. <laughs> you know, even people who are at their most downtrodden still have really important nuggets to share. Yeah. Right. And have really mm -hmm. important things about them that makes their their humanity what it is. And so I love I got to tell you, I, I look back on on school for me. And that's one of the things that I, I look back. It's also a way I mean, my dad reconnected because right. my dad helped so many of those people get clean. A lot of it was right. substance, substance use um, things that the challenges they were were facing. And he helped a lot of those folks um, get clean. Well, I think you can learn through, oh, through yeah. your faults and you can learn yeah. even your father. Like I, I, it's funny you said that. I just, you know, I, I think about my own dad here. You know, you probably know my dad, Aaron Doolin. Yeah. And I think about, shout out to Aaron Doolin. <laughs> I think about my dad. But, you know, we don't, we never had the greatest relationship growing up, but we have a, a good relationship. Yeah. And, and he wasn't around, you know, the first 10 years of my life, he was in prison. And I can still remember having to go get my dad in places that people would not go to. And it, yeah. That messed with me. It yeah. messed with me a lot as a kid. You know, it angered me. I was yeah. angry as a teenager. You know, I remember that, you know, and I remember these gaps. But I've also learned, you know, we reconnect. My dad's, he's a minister now, you know, pastor. Yeah. Life, you know, but my point is I watched my dad transform. And he's not perfect still to this day. Um, but I see people can change. And then I start hearing, I see him in spaces and I hear these stories about the old, my old yeah. dad that people talk about. And I'm like, that can't be the same man. Yeah. It just can't be. We evolve, right? But we do. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's that belief that people can yeah. change. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Give grace, get grace, right, yeah. folks? Yeah. But again, that soup kitchen, humanity, connectedness, yeah. meeting people where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. Well, such a powerful um, segment there. Yeah. Thank you for sharing what's yeah, on your please. mind there, Akpara. Well, I'd like to, you know, listen to what's on our listeners' mind. What's on our listeners' minds? So, listeners, continue to submit your comments, questions to info at diversitystraightup.com. We love to hear from you. And so, Akpara, this segment, we get a lot of, you know, listeners that share what's on their mind as well. Awesome. Um, and sometimes it's comments, questions, you know, a lot of times it's questions. So, we have a lot of questions that we've, you know, banked over time. And we just, you know, pick one and the guest executive uh, for that day it's the honor of awesome. you know mm -hmm. responding to our guest so this question is from brennan from georgia so my organization has taken the organic approach to dei relying on passionate employees to drive the pace energy and initiatives those of us who are on the dei committee are feeling exhausted burned out and discouraged due to the lack of organizational support and investment from leadership and management can you provide us some tips to help us combat diversity fatigue and what can we do to strategically turn this ship around? Ooh. Well, I'm glad you're answering this one. Man, yeah, <laughs> man. That's a real, that's a real, that's, that's a real heavy. Question. You know, I mean, many of us find ourselves in that, in that arena, you know, actually. I, I, I think, though, what was interesting in that question is what is the organizational mm -hmm. support? What is the organizational why 
of even why they have a DEI committee. Like, seriously, like, that's where you start. Um, it, it can't be driven by just a few passionate people. It's got to be driven. I think you, you both of you, in conversations with both of you have taught me that. It's like it's really got to start from the top down. It's got to be part of the organizational DNA and the why. And if you're not there yet, then you have to have an honest conversation about why you're not there. And not to be afraid to pause what you're doing to reevaluate. That's that's what I would say, um, uh, you know, to our to our caller. You know, I, I think you have to look at and evaluate. What does that look like? Why are people fatigued? How is it a way you get more engagement? Where you know, is this really just an initiative, or is it really something that that the organization is trying to have in their very foundation? Yeah. That's very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people rush to do DEI stuff. Um, you know, because it got really popular for a second, right? And without really thinking it all the way through, and if you're really ready for it, right? Um, you know, we're still dealing with the same the same thing at Tanage, like really trying to figure out, like how do we how do we do this and incorporate this on work that's authentic and feels genuine, yeah. Um, and not just because you have a black executive. <laughs> and I think thank you for sharing. Um, I think the other thing on that um, aspect is. When you think about organizations after, you know, the tragedy of George Floyd and the murder that had happened, right, there was an increase in DEI, not only here, but mm-hmm. around the world, more positions, et cetera. Now, in the last year, you're seeing those positions being slashed, cut, whether it's economic downturn, whether it's, you know, because of the political landscape, uh, the legislation that are being passed, who knows, right? All we know is those organizations that have really thought about the why and what that journey means for them. And what does it mean strategically from both the business case and the human case that even during these challenging times, they're going to what? Continue to just day in and day out that intentionality and look at their value system and let that be what grounds them and continues to do this journey. Right. Because the last thing you need is when another incident tragedy occurs, which it will. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. That's just, you know, how life rolls. The last thing you want to do is even if you've got the DEI initiatives and you have someone that's, you know, a chief diversity officer, even if you don't, the last thing you want to say is we're going to recommit again to DEI. What is that going to make your people, your stakeholders feel like Mm -hmm. that? And I think that's probably one of the biggest things is for those that have it as part of their value system. Yeah. Be proactive. And also fatigue is real. We were talking about that earlier. We, We know diversity fatigue is real to our, to our Georgia listener. And, um, as you think about your culture, where you're working at culture, uh, you, the folks at the stop, top spend the money, but it's the voices of the people that, that make change. And so I would, I would suggest, you know, if you've got other individuals who feel the way you do, how are you all talking about and communicate that to your organization? Cause that, that matters as well. Yeah. A great yeah. question. It yeah. Is. Good question. Thank really you good. so much. Yeah. Appreciate that. Uh, and listeners right. continue to, you know, submit questions, comments like Brendan from Georgia did. Yeah. All right. So we're on our last segment. This is our fun segment. All right. It's our last time. Sarah is all get fun with you two. Absolutely. <laughs> so this is what we call our uh, diversity thumbball icebreaker. And for those that are listeners, uh, this is a ball we have. It is literally a ball. It's like a soccer ball. Soft um, one. Soft. A soft one. <laughs> and I'm a I've thrown it hard at Sarah over the years. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it has a bunch of questions, or random questions uh, around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So one of the things that we do, if uh, I'm glad you're in studio with us. We'll throw the ball to you. You catch it wherever your left or right thumb lands. <laughs> Me and Sarah can argue about these rules okay, all the okay, time. Because really... I say you can pick either thumb. Sarah says, you got to pick a thumb. Okay, so pick whatever, one. pick yeah. a thumb and answer <laughs> the question and answer it honestly. All okay? Right. 
and I'll start. I'll throw to you, and then you All can right. throw. We'll join. We'll play with you. Oh, so thank we're, you. I'm we're, glad we're, you're throwing at him. Yeah, I'm going to throw to him first. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to throw the ball up. What early messages did you receive about your identity? Oh, that's a good. That's a good one. Um, again, growing up in Chicago, South Side of Chicago, um, very early on, black male, black male in society. What all that means also means being the firstborn, what it means being the son uh, in a family. Um, so those that was the messaging. Um, again, like a lot of like a lot of families, I hate to say it is got a lessons around how you can behave as a black male in society, um, mm -hmm. how society may treat you and how to be prepared for those times when you may be, you know, at risk, how you walk into a store, how you wear your, you know, I'm looking at your shirt, dehumanize my hoodie. How many times I talk to my kids about don't walk into a store with your hoodie up, like, mm -hmm. yep. like little stuff like that, that, yeah. that gets passed along. So, so for me, that was very early on that, that my parents want to make sure I understood that I was a black male in Chicago and black male in America. And that meant something. And also meant you had to be extra careful. Cool. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna All throw right. It. I'm ready. Who are you throwing it to? I'm sorry. I'm going to throw it to All you. Right. Real <laughs> gentle. Oh, 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 oh then walk not just my water. Okay. Oh. Share a time you went out of your way to make someone feel included. Have you had that one before? I don't remember. I think I have. We I probably have. had all these at one point. Uh, yes. Hit, hit the other finger. You're going to hit them over. Well, yeah. <laughs> Are you cheating? <laughs> She's cheating again. Well, no, I have both my thumb around that one. All so right. I'll take that one. Share a time you went out of your way to make someone feel included. It happened just um, over the weekend. Um, um, I met someone over a few years ago in one of my classes that I was teaching. And I want to walk the talk of when people say, well, how do you meet people? It's like, well, intentionality. That means you need to connect with them whether it's virtual, just do meetups, right? And I've been building on this relationship for about three years now, so prior to COVID. And um, when you're starting to meet individuals, uh, she identifies as an LGBTQ plus member. She's also um, a half um, African-American and a half Latina. And so a lot of intersectionalities. And um, I invited her to be part, you know, meet up, meet up with some of my uh, friend circle this weekend. She's uh, in Iowa for a few years, feels very lonely, and um, it's been hard, to say the least, to be able to um, get acclimated here. Good for you. So what we were saying about how do we create inclusive, welcoming environments to folks is that intentionality going out of the way. And that also means that I'm opening up my part of a personal part of mm -hmm. my life, right? Yet, how do other people, you know, um, do that? And that's where I know that I have to do my part and just help folks. And um, it's going to be on them, though, to continue to build that relationship. Now she has met, you know, all of my friends, uh, um, well, my friends, but, you know, some of my core friends mm -hmm. over the past couple of years through various one-on-ones, et cetera. Good deal. That's yeah. awesome. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Here we go. I got the ball. And my question, my question is... What are your parents' attitudes towards LGBTQ communities? Um, my parents' attitudes are very open. Um, I have people in my family who are uh, members of the LGBTQ community. And I always like to tell the story. You may have heard it once, Eric. I can't remember. Um, but I always tell the story about my own first experience, at least that I, well, one of two first experiences I remember growing up. Um, I grew up in a black church, and I can still remember uh, when I was about 13 or 14, my mom would take me to choir rehearsal. 
every once in a while on a Saturday. And I remember the minister and this, this was my bias kicking in as a kid, uh, but I knew had his mannerisms and watching the way that he mm-hmm. carried himself. I assumed he was gay and I found out that he was and, to, and it never was a big deal to me. But as I look back now and I think about the religious community and how they treat members of the mm-hmm. LGBT community, I wonder, I've never asked my mom this. I need to do this. I wonder how he was, how he was treated because my mom just, it wasn't any big deal. But it wasn't a big deal to my family. I just wondered how others in the church community treated him, and I've never, I've never actually asked her that. And I think I might, but, uh, but yeah, my family's very open and very, very, very uh, acceptance of, of the LGBT community. We have members of our family, yeah. so yeah, absolutely. So that was our fun game. All that right. was our fun like surprise, that. man. Yeah, yeah. Like that. Yes, it, it could get fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for playing with us, Agpara. And as we wrap up on diversity, straight up here. What advice would you give to our listeners that would help enhance their own diversity, equity, inclusion, and engagement journey as um, leaders of the community, of the business community, and just individually as a person? Yeah, no, first of all, it's been great to be both of you. Um, Such a pleasure just to sit down and chit-chat. I think that word engagement, I think that's what I would say, is that engaged you know, you gotta, you, you gotta, you know, you gotta jump into the arena, right? You gotta have these conversations. You gotta have tough conversations. You gotta ask for clarity, ask for understanding, um, have that connectedness, and and get out of your comfort zone and have some conversations with people who may not think like you, um, and that's okay. You, you know, but again, if you don't engage, then we just sit in our corners and we don't learn, we don't grow. We don't help each other grow, and we, we're not helping our community thrive. And so that's what I would say. I, engage. Um, no matter what you do, engage. Get involved. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Well, thank you so much for being on our show. It has been a, a wonderful hour spending time with you, learning about you. I learn so much every time when we connect <laughs> and um, appreciate uh, your leadership. Um and uh, the various facets. Um, so um, thank you again for giving thank up you. your time. Yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate, appreciate your time. It. Right, Absolutely. No. Thank, thank you. you. And a shout out again to our sponsors, ACT, Alliant Energy, and Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust. The show is produced by LAS Media Group. A special thanks to our listeners, as without you, we wouldn't be here. So please continue to help us grow subscriber base by sharing our show with others, liking, commenting, etc. Love this episode of Diversity Straight Up? Then head over to the most popular podcast and audio platforms to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up and send your questions, comments, and suggestions to info at diversitystraightup.com. And remember, wherever you live, work, and play, our backyards are increasingly global. And as we say on our show, Diversity Straight Up. Keeping it real.